0: If you have a Bible with you, open it please now to Romans chapter 8. This is the part 2 of Gospel Security. Uh, People often ask me if I could only have one chapter in the Bible. If I was going to prison, let's say, and there was no access to Bibles or the proverbial desert isle. Which chapter would you take in the Bible? I've always debated between the last chapter, Revelation 22, but I think I would take Romans chapter eight. I see it as the Mount Everest of uh, biblical literature, and there's just so much here. And so what I want us to do today is continue. I think I covered pretty much the first three points last Sunday. We'll sort of do a brief review of that, but we're going to be moving on to the last one who could separate us. Um, what Paul does in this passage is he asks one what question, what shall we say then, and then follows that with four who questions. And they are rhetorical questions, and the right answer to each question, hear me now, is nobody. I've been walking around all week singing that song, no, 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 no. I could go on and on, but I won't. Nobody can do the shimmy, nobody can do the shake, nobody can do the boogaloo. Does anybody know that song? You do. All you gray heads know it, a few young ones. I danced to that in high school, by the way. But that's the right answer to the question. Nobody, nobody. That's the answer because whoever it would be cannot stand before our triune God who has secured our salvation. So here now, the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for preserving for us the scriptures. Uh, and we thank you. Are especially thankful that we have this uh, section, this text before us today, because it feeds and nourishes our hungry soul and provides for us a rock solid assurance that we need in the face of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which all question and cause us to doubt any kind of sense of security and acceptance before you. So we pray today that your word would have its way with us, that it would create in us faith, that it would uh, bring forth in us life, that would produce fruitfulness, that would redound to your glory. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen we are doing a series of messages on the topic of gospel reset and what that means is we're getting back to the core of what it means to be a Christian and what that provides us and what that shapes us into as we grow in our understanding of it and one of the issues that I think is so important for Christians is the issue of assurance we are assailed with doubts from those three sources I mentioned in the prayer. The world itself belittles and makes fun of our Savior. Um, They don't believe in him. They don't see any value in him. He used to be considered a good teacher with good morals. I don't even think that's true anymore. People hate Jesus. They do. And I hated him too until the Lord turned uh, turned my heart around. Secondly, the flesh. That is our fallen nature, which is filled with doubts and insecurity and riddles us constantly and causes us to question. Thirdly, the devil. I believe, and the scripture teaches more importantly, that there is a personal being called Satan who has minions of demons under his control. He's the prince of the power of the air. And as I said last week, like. Uh, Hanoi, Jane, and Tokyo Rose, he's constantly blasting us through his network with propaganda, doubting whether or not the Bible's true, doubting whether or not somebody just made this all up, and we're just sleepwalking through life. But we need some handles to hang on to. We need some grounding. We need something that we can count on. And what we have in Romans 8 are the handles we can hang on to as life uh, throws everything at us, and so to understand the gospel means that we understand only the assurance that comes from the justification we have in Jesus Christ can produce a holiness that springs from love, rather than an ex- exploitation of God for our own ends. In other words, only when our obedience to the Lord flows from a justification, secured assurance of the Father's approval of us for His Son's sake, is our obedience an expression of love for God above all, rather than an attempt to obligate Him through our efforts. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is that God treats us not as our sins deserve but that he treats Jesus as our sin deserves and he treats us as Jesus's righteousness deserves. If we could really grasp that, or rather have that grasp us, it would certainly revolutionize our lives. One key to Christian maturity is to continually adopt this way of seeing and understanding reality. At the same time, it is also profoundly challenging. Some Christians believe that the minute you understand the gospel, your identity is great and there's nothing ever to struggle with again. But one thing I've learned, and you've learned too, is the Christian life is a constant struggle. Martin Luther says, Show me a Christian who doesn't struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and I'll show you somebody who's not a Christian. You should be struggling. And if you're not struggling, you're not alive. And that's what the Bible teaches. Struggle is normative. But there has to be some grounding. There has to be a place we can go to when we struggle, which is constantly. In view of the struggle, we need to learn how, as we've said before, to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because the gospel is so alien and counterintuitive to our human nature and our flesh that we can lose its power and effect upon us. We must soak in the gospel, as Luther says, beat it into our heads continually. We must lay hold of the promises of God. Uh, God consistently says that in Christ we are adored, loved, delighted in, and fully and finally accepted, and are forever under the favor of God. We stand in grace. We are grounded in grace yet at the same time our failure, our sin, our coldness, our hardness leaves us with strong feelings sometimes of condemnation and alienation. So whose verdict do I accept? Do I accept what the Word of God says or do I accept how I feel? And this is how and when you need to learn to go to a place like Romans chapter 8 and tell your feelings off. Tell your feelings what the verdict of God is, because the verdict of God is reality. If we accept God's verdict, it means that our attitude toward ourselves should be the very same as God's attitude toward us. If God says he loves us, Uh, demonstrating that love while we were yet sinners giving up his son upon the cross, if God says he has forgiven us, he has accepted us, who in the world are we to deny that as believers in Christ? Ground zero for the Christian is starting the day with confidence that I am accepted in the Beloved that it's not contingent upon anything I do and it is totally and fully confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It frees us to serve Him without fear. It helps us see that what used to be duty to us becomes delight. And as the compass points north We also get our gospel bearings that we have nothing to prove. We can rest in God's approval of us. Which is what Romans 8 is making clear. If any part of our relationship with God is contingent upon us, then you will never have any assurance. If you believe that you contribute anything, the smallest iota or or yod. Uh, in the Bible, the smallest mark you can make, if you think you can contribute anything, you have every reason in the world to be insecure. But if you understand that your salvation is not in you, that which you do, it is something outside of you that has been done on your behalf. The Father gave up His Son for us, did not spare Him, the text says. And as a result of that, He accomplished our salvation. He didn't make it possible, he accomplished it, and the way that we receive it is always with the empty hands of faith. Faith, what Luther called naked faith, what John Calvin called at the same time, faith that is self emptying. He says you can't be any more empty than to exercise faith in Christ because you're contributing nothing but your sins. That's all I have to give are my sins, and they may be splendid sins at that, things that I think uh, probably God would like and somehow indebt him to me, or make him become obligated to me, but rather it is purely outside of you. That is why Paul says, who can condemn you? The judge of the whole earth, judgment has been turned over to the Son, and he's the one that justified you he's the one that took your condemnation he's the one that raised again for your justification so why do you feel condemned because you're looking at yourself and you're not looking at Jesus it is that simple if we accept that God's verdict toward us is what the Bible says it is then we live in a whole new way any attempt however To find any compelling reason why God must forgive me or love me or accept me is an evasion of an undermining and and an undermining of a fundamental truth of the gospel that our acceptability to God is always determined by what Jesus alone has done not what we have done for ourselves. We have to come to the place where we submit to his righteousness and let go of our own, which is far more difficult than you can ever imagine. We love self-righteousness. There's something in us that feels, that feels good about self-justification. Why? Have you looked at how people are virtue signaling now in our culture? Do you know what that is? Do you understand what that says? I'm a good person because I do this or I don't do this or I adopt this philosophy or I don't adopt this philosophy. And the Bible's answer to this, there's no one good. No, not one. No one. You need to forget about goodness and recognize that as a Christian, the reason we have life is we're looking outside of ourselves to him. And yet we want to fight about all of these things that are occurring in our culture. But virtue signaling is so out of hand. I'm better than you because I'm more this than you. Or I understand this and you don't. What a recipe for utter disaster and anarchy. So the core of the challenge is whether we will live by faith that is reliance upon Christ or do what comes naturally that is live by unbelief which is self-reliance our hearts are deceitful jeremiah says and desperately sick and we have a hard time accepting the unfavorable evaluation of scripture regarding our fallen nature nobody likes to be called a sinner and our pride reacts with hostility to the truth of our absolute need to be at the mercy of anyone Unbelief says you know I'm not that bad. I can handle this. I've got it. Others may struggle but I'm not a loser. I'm not a failure. I'm not a weak person. I don't need a crutch. Our desire to save ourselves whether it is by obeying his standards or rejecting and rebelling against his standards and establishing our own is always present. Self-justification is always rearing its ugly head undermining our joy you can never bask in the love of God in Christ Jesus and at the same time be part of justifying your own self before him because of what you do and so the danger of regression is a problem it's a problem that's addressed all over the Bible And in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, Paul corrects the perspective on living the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells them that he came to Galatia, he preached Christ, and him crucified graphically and clearly. Having begun in the Spirit, are they now being matured by returning back to the flesh, that is, reliance upon the law? Sanctification is as much by faith as justification is. And I I defy anyone to show me different in the Bible. It is just too humiliating to receive free, unearned favor. And our mind drifts back constantly to the notion that our acceptability to God is contingent upon our sincerity, our efforts, and our latest, greatest, most successful performance. We have an obsessive drive to discover some inner reason that God loves me so that I can bolster my confidence. We find it far easier to believe that God loves us because we somehow deserve it. And yet, even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 7 and 8, we find the contrary. God loves us for one and one reason only. He loves us. That's what the Bible says. He has chosen to put his love upon us to look for tangible and certain reasons for why God should love us is falling into quicksand our foundation for acceptance never has been and never will be something in us but rather upon the solid rock of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ now before I get to verses 35 to 39 I want to give you three ways that Christians tend to look at self as the basis of confidence and status before the face of God. The first way is to look within at our spiritual experiences of God and to see how we measure up by comparison. How does my level of spiritual experience compare with others? Are my prayers being answered? Do I have spiritual power? and swagger what is my spiritual pulse rate how strong am i in the face of temptation does supernatural experience mean that god approves of me looking within for a basis of confidence is deadly it will only result in pride out of control if i believe i'm doing well or despair to the bottom if i'm failing and inferior neither pride nor despair is the fruit of the spirit and so often christians look within and we look within for confidence and assurance that we are accepted by god and so we want to see something this was one of the problems that the puritans had now i have to qualify this all over the place because every time i say this somebody says pastor tim doesn't like the puritans yes i do but just like everybody i know there's something i don't like about you no no not really The Puritans uh, tended to obsess with spiritual experience, with looking inward, to find evidence that they were of the elect. And the scripture does say examine yourselves, truly. But if you examine yourselves, you'll never find enough inside of you to justify you. But rather it's to look outside of yourself and focus upon Christ and recognize He is the reason you are accepted. A second way we do it is to trust in victory over some besetting sin that belittles us. Somehow God must approve of me because I'm doing pretty good in the Christian life. I've moved out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. God was disgusted with me when I struggled but he's now pleased with me when I have the victory. As I read the Bible, struggle with indwelling residual sin is normative for the Christian life, not abnormal. The struggle drives us outside of ourselves to find rest and joy in what Jesus has done for us. That's called the second use of the law and the third use of the law. The law of God comes in and exposes our sinfulness, but the law can never fix it. All it can do is show it to us. But it's supposed to drive us out of ourselves to whom? Christ. Christ who is now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is there in the presence of the throne of God as our advocate and as we look at him and look to him we recognize that forensically and legally we stand as righteous before God as Jesus is. Our sins paid for. Struggle is normative, not abnormal, but the struggle drives us outside of ourselves. We do make progress but progress is never measured in not needing Jesus less but in needing Jesus more. We have to live at the mercy of Christ. Somehow people think spiritual maturity is growing to sort of an independence of having not to need Jesus so much. But one thing you'll discover as you grow in your faith is you need Jesus a whole lot more than you could ever dream and imagine. And the wonderful thing is he's there. And he meets our deepest longings and needs The third way we look to self is our fulfillment or success in life. Are we experiencing a great life? Does my life have meaning? Is my marriage working? Are my kids turning out great? Are we, as we look for evidence of acceptance in our level of life fulfillment, we're doing what C.S. Lewis referred to as a gardener pulling up plants every day, checking the roots to determine the health of the plants. Our obsession with how well we are doing is sick introversion and introspection. It is rear view mirrorism, looking back to see my progress rather than looking outside of myself and resting in him. That is what it means for the apostle Paul to say for me to live is Christ. As we learn to take God as as, at his word in spite of our natural inclinations and emotions, Our Christian identity and self-acceptance, the true foundation of holiness, will grow. But one of the leading causes of apathy and spiritual coldness and indifference and inertia is a lack of assurance of just how much God loves us, how amazing it is, how astounding it is, how stupefying it is. If we would just learn to know that he has said of us, I am his and he is mine. The message of God's staggering, astounding love, most vividly expressed in the cross of Christ, is not breaking through somehow and it's not moving us. Therefore, this lack of assurance and confidence and joy and freedom and peace are symptomatic of not grasping, or rather being grasped by the love of God in Christ. Romans eight thirty-five to 39 is that great crescendo of God's persevering and conquering love. Paul is not speaking as some sort of ivory tower uh, theologian or objective observer with rational observations to make. He's speaking from personal experience, and deep personal convictions hammered out on the anvil of real life. Paul's conviction of God's love is radically Christ-focused and centered. He's not moved by the idea of some sort of generic, unconditional, positive regard. But with a love that bleeds and suffers and experiences abandonment and dies. We hang on to him because he hangs on to us, We love him because he first loved us. Christ is always taking the initiative. Christ is always prior to us. All man-centered theology, rather than Christ-centered theology, is at its roots, works, righteousness, and self-justification. Assurance is always grounded... Uh, on, not on what we do, but on what Christ has done. The good news is that we in, endure and persevere because God perseveres with us and preserves us. We will not fall away forever for one and one reason alone. His relentless, pursuing, passionate, conquering love will never let us go. In Romans 8, 31 to 34 Paul's argument regarding God's love is more legal and objective but in Romans 8 35 to 39 Paul emphasizes more of the personal and relational dimensions of God's love so how are we to understand the love of God the amazing discovery of faith is that God is above all one who gives that is one who gives of himself by emptying himself He has revealed himself to be the one whose goal it is to bring us to share in his glory and in the richness of our relationship to himself. Love is the relational glue or velcro so to speak that holds us together. In relation to our sin his love expresses itself as grace. In relation to our need and helplessness and misery his love expresses itself as mercy. One mistake that I have often made when thinking about God's love is to understand it as sort of an an infinite extension of what it means to me. In so doing, I have domesticated and relativized and humanized and idolatrously remade God's love into my own image. We often, and scripture does too, Uh, We often uh, use analogies of the love of a father, or a mother, or a brother, or a wife, or a husband, or a friend. These are helpful, but God's love transcends all analogies and goes far beyond what any of them could mean. The way to grasp it is to hear the story of God's history with his people, his persevering struggle even with Israel. The prophet Hosea is a great place to start to see how God loved his people. But the climax of God's loving heart is revealed most graph- graphically in the radically uh, offering up and delivering up of his son as a gift for sinful people. When viewed from that perspective, his love seems strange almost and incomparable. It is self-giving, but even that seems too pale. It is a love that stops at nothing and is resolutely devoted to the other, regardless of however far away and hostile that other may be. It is love that is disinterested. That is, it's not motivated by the attractiveness and beauty and worth and value of its beloved. We have none of that before the face of God. Virtues don't increase it. Vices don't diminish it. No sacrifice is too great to enrich people who did not ask for it and even actively or passively oppose it. For this strange, amazing disposition of our triunes, God's heart toward us, we have no better word than the word love. One reason we find it so difficult to believe in a God who loves us like that and to accept it with our heart and mind is because we cannot imagine ourselves ever loving anyone who responds to us the way we often respond to God. It is the finite trying to grasp the infinite and the sinful trying to grasp the holy. So, to sum up and move toward the end, I'm doing one of Paul's finally here, where Paul and Philippians said, finally, brethren, and then goes on for two more chapters. What does it mean to say that God loves us? The love of God is his coming, his bending down, his stooping, his condescending that both presupposes and bridges the infinite gap between the holy and the sinful. His love is free, it is sovereign. He gives himself freely and decisively. But remember this and never forget this. God does not need us at all in any kind of ontological sense or in in terms of completing himself or his being or adding to his glory he does not need us to complete himself he does not need us to relieve his loneliness we do not enrich the community of our three-in-one God nor do we ever advance or increase his glory at all yet at the same time the most amazing and astounding truth is that God wants us. <laughs> I, I can't get over that. He wants us. Why? For reasons only known to himself. He wants nothing else but to be our covenant partner. He enjoys us being in his presence. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. And he longs for us, or he yearns for us, as it were, to find our joy and delight in that relationship. God's love is a jealous love. And that sounds strange to our ears. Because jealousy in our culture is not perceived as a great thing. It's sinful. But God's love is a jealous love. He really and fully wants us for himself. He wants to be fully with us in union and exclusiveness of that covenantal relationship. His love cannot abide our idolatry and unfaithfulness. He can tolerate no other lovers. He will brook no other rivals. His love crosses our path to break our resistance. In his jealous love, God demands total allegiance And surrender to fellowship with Him. Every crutch will be removed in order that we will lean on and rely only upon Him. Think of Abraham. God tests Abraham to offer up his son Isaac just to see what his heart would do. Isaac represented to him all of the promises of God, all of the hope of a seed, all of the hope of everything God had said to him in his covenantal relationship. And now God tests him whether or not Abraham will obey God, demonstrating love for God over the idolatry of his own son. And Abraham is willing to offer up his son and God stops him God's love has a goal. He not only wants to be present with us, but being present with us will change and renew us into the image of His Son. He wants us to look like Him. He wants us to love like He does. Having said all that, though, a most difficult question now faces us. No matter how well-suited a person is for this love, Often in the presence of this unasked for and jealous love, that person turns out to be an enemy and a rebel. God's desire to give him to this, to the, uh, himself to the person as holy love, but in the, if the person refuses this relationship with God's will, God in his patience will deal with him in such a way to make him realize that his situation and compel him to turn around. Thus the prodigal son coming to himself and returning home. God's love is holy, it is a consuming fire. For those who resist it, it becomes wounded love and wrath for the sake of his holiness. There is a limit to His duration, to the duration of His patience with sinners rejecting His love. If we keep on ignoring Him, one day He will ignore us forever. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not safe. However, the Gospel leaves us no doubt that we may surrender ourselves in complete confidence To the gracious love of God when we refuse to choose wrath. We are an estranged people but God meets us here as injured love and works to make us aware of our estrangement and to induce us to surrender to his love. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, God's question rings out, where are you? It is a continuous announcement of that fact and the story reaches its culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where holiness and wrath come together upon our vicarious Savior who bears our estrangement and wins for us the gifts of faith and repentance. We being enemies are graciously recovered by his love. We are now his friends. And we think about that love daily. Nothing warms the heart more than soaking in such love. So who can separate us? Nobody. Nothing. Nothing can separate us. God will accomplish His purposes in our life. So remember that part of Romans chapter 8 is to get you to look outside of yourself for life and for hope and for peace and for joy. Don't try to make it a a matter of something you conjure up yourself. People used to say to me, "Uh, I know, Pastor, i got a good analogy for you on what the Christian life is like. It's like I'm driving in my car, and the needle goes toward emptying my gas tank, so I come to church and I get my gas tank full, and it fills back up. No! That is not Christianity. That's self-salvation. Christianity is looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus, constantly looking at Jesus and believing the things I've said today will do more to motivate you and energize you than anything in the world. Sometimes we do not realize that it is Christ in us who is the hope of glory. That the life we now live, we live by faith in whom? Ourselves? No! In Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. So there is the core of Gospel Reset. Do not look within. Look at Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Gospel. It is truth. Truth that shapes us. Truth that breaks us, truth that draws us in, truth that secures us and gives us hope. And Father, we thank you for your word today that so encourages us in all of the struggles we all face. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who understand and grasp and are grasped by your amazing love. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.